0: Sometimes with fintech, people over-index on the math of why someone should do something. Like, oh, it's so obvious. I'm a cheaper way to do this. And they actually forget about the psychology of someone buying that financial product. Most financial products don't get bought very often. If you think about it, it's not a daily decision you're making. And there's a lot of considerations that go into purchasing a financial product. They're not all math. And most people actually are emotion-driven. And so sometimes I think people forget about that and they forget to talk to their customer and be like, hey, when you are buying a mortgage or an insurance policy, what are you thinking about? What are your considerations? And then right. addressing that through their product experience, they go straight to the numbers and the math. And a lot right. of people don't enjoy that and it doesn't resonate. They don't engage with it well.
1: Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build a future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, Serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over twenty thousand members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Say hello to Basket transforming Indonesia's supply chains, and redefining what's possible in commerce. Basket sees the untapped potential in over 200,000 distributors and wholesalers. This startup merges tradition with innovation, technology, and financial support. They are not looking to disrupt. They are here to collaborate. The results are modernized operations, streamlined supply chains, and a win-win for manufacturers and consumers alike. Learn more at www.basket.app. Hey, morning, Shiyan. Good to see you. Morning, Jeremy.
0: Jeremy was quickly buttoning his shirt so he wouldn't have too much of a deep V on camera for all of you listeners out
1: there. I think it's the difference between one button and two buttons on this polo t. Gotta keep it conservative here. So talking about conservative and the news, there has been a lot of news recently about law, talking about C Group, lots of different things. So let's talk about it. The big news that you wanted to mention, Shiyan?
0: Oh, well, I mean, I think C group stock is down by like 30% huge drop right. I think probably the biggest since they've been public and it's interesting right I think it's all about expectations because they actually did they were profitable this quarter they were profitable since the Q4 of last year but you're seeing a contraction on the gaming business and I think it's more that the CEO Forrest had said they're basically planning to spend more to try to gain share on the e-commerce side for their shopping business mm, um, which yeah. I think makes people nervous and sort of indicated also a willingness to go back into loss in order to pursue pursue that market share lead. So uh, I think investors punish the stock on that. But I think there's some really good spots in the earnings report, right? The financial services business is growing. um, And that's what basically they've been taking the profits from the gaming business, funding the e-commerce, the financial services business. And so perhaps it's a matter of more communicating how the investments are going to pay off and over what time frame to try to give people a little bit more uh, color and certainty around that versus feeling that, hey, we're going to be competing against the bottomless pits of Ali and JD and everyone else in region or in the markets where we're we're
1: yeah. I think what comes to my sure away is that the markets may not necessarily be right to us having lunch with somebody and I was like, oh, see, are they doing something wrong? And I was like, well, the market is basically saying, hey, what's our expectation of the profit that we're able to book over the medium to long term? So we still don't know how it's done. A lot of it is dependent on the quality of execution and velocity. I think C has really outperformed over one year ago. I think a lot of folks were just very skeptical about the ability to kind of turn a profit and be able to strengthen on that basis. And I think they were able Able to execute above expectations actually above analyst expectations above many people's expectations so i think this is to some extent also like a communication and strategy shift that wasn't communicated in advance uh but i think taking a step back is also like you said it's a function of the competition a lot of competition has come in obviously lazada uh that has been owned by the alibaba group has continued to be aggressive uh but more importantly uh, ByteDance dance with tiktok shop has been super aggressive um and they've added a lot i think you know in our whatsapp brave whatsapp group <clears throat> we also recently shared an article about TikTok's rise and how many users they've been adding but also a lot of volume and GMV they've been growing. So I think it's a fair discussion which is saying like hey we need to compete so let's focus on growth and it also is fair for investors to be like okay this is going to be a very intense e-commerce battle again. I don't know is it chapter 2 chapter 3 chapter 4 you know it's a tough fight.
0: Yeah I think this is what the market in the short term is a voting machine and in the long term is a weighing scale Yeah, and so I think it takes a while for this to shake out and I think if you want evidence of that you can look at Vid Vinfast SPAC IPO, mm. where now Vinfast is worth more than GM, which is clearly absurd given that Vinfast shipped like 18,000 vehicles last year and I think GM shipped like 5 million. Whoa. So, you
1: sure you're not missing a couple zeros there? You didn't see 18 million? Nope.
0: I double checked. I double checked this. They just broke ground on a new EV plant in North Carolina, I think. But it was an incredibly small offering. I think the offering only raised $30 million and like 95% of the shares are controlled by Vin Group uh, related yeah. entities. So incredibly small float and a lot of hype on EV. So yeah. Anyway, whoever got to play the pop, good for you. But I think we can't take these things too seriously in the long term.
1: Ultimately, value has to come back to normal. And the value is that it will get up to five million vehicles. Is that the bull case that people are claiming in a spec prospectus? I'm sure you can
0: claim anything in a spec prospectus, right? Well, there is a lot. Okay. Well, there's
1: two topics we have here. There's one is EV vehicles and the bull and bear side. Oh boy. Let's close out the C group at least before we go there. We talk about EVs after this, but I think for at least more interesting part is that every player is also not only doing that, but it also opening up banks, right? So CS... in in parallel about $173 million into Mari Bank so that was the third digital native bank so it's a function of the regulators opening up banking licenses and then previously we had Grab worked with Singtel to put in $100 million into GXS Bank and of course I have a friend who works at Trust Bank which was a partnership between Standard Chartered and Fair Price Groove and for them the first out of the gate they've done about 24 million transactions and they have about 650,000 weekly active users these are all fresh launch numbers and of course you take a step back even further, we see like this. Time has launched in the Philippines. C is also present through C Bank, and Bank is also available in Indonesia. All this comes from Tech in Asia. So thanks Tech in Asia for the article. But I thought it was just an interesting dynamic where I think we see there's an e-commerce side that's obviously getting very aggressive. And then also you see this, I don't know what to call it, it's a big bet obviously in terms of capital, but also in terms of management focus on banking. And it always makes me wonder what the actual end game is going to be. Because when you, you know, I think historically, obviously banking licenses have been lucrative, right? It's it's a form of licensing that allows money. A number of players, so you kind of get to have some level of monopoly profit because the regulators want to work with a close group of banks and I think we've seen that in the US where you don't see new banks being launched anymore but you see all of that getting consolidated and so that's how your economies of scale and economies of scope kick in really well at that scale but I think it's an interesting dynamic where in Southeast Asia there's a whole bunch of new banks being built and so I'm just not sure personally how that's going to play out what do you think Shiyan?
0: I mean historically I think in emerging markets you have a huge underbanked segment so there are not that many banks and they are pretty comfortable serving the upper tier of customers Right. And there's less competition because banking tends to be more protected, licensed, as you mentioned. And so there's not a lot of incentive for them to go serve these mid and low income customers. Right. Uh, and so then you end up having sort of these informal market, yeah. financial services, loan sharks, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And so I think the story we're telling here as these digital bank services get launched is, hey, we already have distribution. That's one of the most expensive things in financial services, whether it's NTUC, whether it's Sing, Tell, or Grab, or whether it's C through their e-commerce and gaming properties, we already Distribution. we already touched millions of consumers. And this means that we have a really low cost channel to get them banked, go from unbanked to banked or underbanked to more properly banked. And because it's all digital, we're going to be able to serve them in a more cost-effective way. So I think that's the story. And then the question is, can you actually do it? And so here's where the rubber hits the road, which is like, what are you trying to get them to do? Are you trying to get them to save? You want to get them to borrow from you? You want to get them to invest? What is the financial service that you kind of want the under or unbanked people to engage in, and can you deliver it cost effectively? I think the challenge historically for credit services has been part of the reason incumbent banks don't bank these people is because they're not great credits, right? And there could be a segment that is they're actually good credits, but they're underbanked because the incumbents are too busy dealing with high-end customers. And right. hey, if you can find those people like salaried civil servants in the Philippines, right. underbanked but good credits, right? Then that's worth it. But if it is someone who is underbanked for a reason because they are not good credits, extending credit to them generally is not a money-making proposition. And so I think if there is a way to close the loop, like if you're Grab, you basically can garnish your Grab driver's wages. So you actually are holding collateral in a sense. You get paid first. Then there's a way to close that underwriting loop, right? But you have to think about that in each of your segments, which is like, how are you better able to deliver savings or credit or insurance or investing products to basically people who have really small dollar amount accounts. Yeah. Um, and then that's an interesting, I think it like, is an interesting problem, but it's not as easy as being like, hey, I have distribution, they're using my app anyway. Like, why don't I just do this thing? It's actually like a lot more consideration.
1: Yeah, I think that was very much how the initial reports of several years ago during the bull market, everybody was trying to build a bank and very much, I think, press releases flagged up that story. Um, and I think where I'll add to that color is that I think first of all incumbent banks are not slow either I mean they also have the cash the profitability and so for them they're very much looking at saying hey if you are educating these consumers and you're finding the best ones out of the lot then we can push them over time into um, the services obviously this is for banks that are more focused on innovating and competing as well but at some level they say Goliath wakes up right then you have to watch out I think the other thing also I think is that there's been thesis around building like new banks in several countries But the truth of the matter is that another level is not every country is as permissive as Singapore in allowing licenses to be given out. And if you don't have that license, then effectively, if you're not regulated by a government and you're trying to work with the regulators in parallel, now what happens is that the regulators can have conversations with incumbents and incumbents may very much say, hey, we recommend that either they are not granted a license or that they should actually have the exact amount, same amount of compliance as we normally have to do, which effectively kills the challenger because no challenger can ever deal with all the requirements that incumbent banks already deal with. And so I think we've definitely seen the collapse of that fintech story, or at least a neobank story in several countries where regulators have ended up saying, no, we don't like what this is headed towards in the banking sector.
0: Yeah. And I think neobanks were a huge category that got funded, but I think the report is only about 5% of them are profitable. Yeah, And so I think this is where they run into that problem, which is like, you can go out and get lots of users, but if you're not disciplined about how you underwrite and monetize them, um, it can be a money-losing proposition.
1: Yeah, because you can run out and get a lot of users, but then a lot of users could all just be not worth a lot from a economic perspective, right? Because the accounts that they're holding are relatively small. So you're spending a lot of time managing, maintaining, and thankfully, you're digital in terms of cost. But still, the balance is not huge. But that's one. And then two is that for your better customers, the truth is they could have accounts in multiple accounts so they could be using. I think this is auntie that I knew and she was very happy about all the digital banks right <laughs> because she had a main account that she trusted very much and then she would shop around all the digital banks and take all their various offerings right for coupons promotions the extra bump in interest rates but at the end of the day is this person actually a good customer? Well from the perspective of a digital bank this person looks like demographically everything's right but the share of wallet or the share of the banking account is not there and more importantly like you said loyalty at some level is not there. So that's not an insurmountable problem Problem, but I think that's the race between incumbents and challenges.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I think loyalty. I mean, what is loyalty, right? Like it's a bank, it has a job to do. So, you know, <laughs> I think it's on the neo banks and incumbent banks to really yeah. improve the product experience. Right. And make it like, hey, I can't imagine switching, even if like some place is offering me slightly more interest or whatever, because it's just so easy to deal with my bank versus right. anybody else. And I feel yeah. like people don't spend enough time on like most banks, product experience is terrible. Right. Many banks won't give you statements beyond twelve months, oh, yeah. and if you I want a statement, that. which I just want to download honestly, they won't. And then you have to write into them, and they will mail you paper statements, mm-hmm. and they will charge you thirty dollars
1: per statement. Just how they make the money. That's the profitability it's- is right there
0: outrageous. It is outrageous.
1: It is outrageous. I mean, by the point is that you're a perfect customer. Which customer needs a statement from two years ago? That means time to make bank, baby.
0: Oh, no. No, I'm closing that account. After <gasps> this happened, I was like, that's it. I'm out.
1: That's such as life, right? Yep. But I think also there's a strategic angle as well for these e-commerce players and so forth. So if you're stand chart at fair price group, you're building a bank. Feels like you're building a bank. But I think if you're a C and you're building a bank, or you're Grab, you're building a bank. That's slightly different because I think there's a strategic side of it. So what do you think is the synergy here? You I don't think,
0: think that yeah. StanChart and Inca and TUC building a bank is not strategic?
1: Well, I think it's strategic. I mean, stand chart I mean is and, a bank, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm trying to say. It's like you're building a bank, and now you're building one that's also consumer, much more consumer oriented. And obviously, with fair price, if all your users are shopping in Singapore, and TUC, fair price. And I was just there, I was trying to buy Shoe Polish, which apparently no longer exists in supermarkets. Apparently they've been out of stock for three years. So Shoe Polish is a really bad SKU. Great, fun fact, totally divergent. But back to it is that you have millions of people visiting Fairprice all the time, right? So I think it's a great go-to-market channel. And Stanchard obviously already has the banking expertise. So strategic, obviously. But I think it's slightly different in flavor from strategy from how C and Grab are thinking about it. Because first of all, they're not banks yet. So what do you think is that strategic Synergy from your perspective?
0: I mean, if I were Grab, I think the drivers are the easiest people to bank right. because you own them and their right. income making, and you have right. the best sort of view. I think the consumers are hard. It's like when right. Grab pops up, the thing is, do you want ride insurance on your upcoming Grab ride? I'm like, no. What is this? In what world? What are you trying to tell me? I could get in a car accident when I get into this Grab, so I need to buy. That's not the right thing to tell me. No, I don't.
1: Do you need us to listen to your phone during the entire car ride so they could protect you in case of a safety incident?
0: <laughs> yeah, right. It's just like, no, I don't want that. I think for C-Group, it's interesting, right? This commerce thing, there's a very clear like e yeah. escrow, payments, all that sort of stuff. Especially if also you are banking the shop owners. I sell stuff on Shopee. I could get advances because I can predict what this shop is going to make. I already have a lot of transaction history on that. And then on the gaming side, I think digital goods, digital marketplaces, making it really easy for people to transact, having a wallet, things like that. I think they're pretty natural places to do some of these things. And then maybe over time, people trust you more and then you can start to sell more yeah. sophisticated services. But uh, I feel like for Grab and, and C Group, it's really to start with the people who are making money on their platform because right. that's where they're going to have the best underwriting data. And if you're making money, you're already oriented to see the platform as a place that is a reliable business partner versus a consumer is much more fickle. I think the cost of acquiring a consumer into becoming a financial services customer is just way higher.
1: I think that what was interesting as well is that it's also a cost synergy. So if you're a C and to some extent Grab, but you're already paying Visa, MasterCard, all these credit cards, whole bunch of tolls. So it's very much like if I have my own product, I'm going to be saving money on all of the tolls that are being charged.
0: Yeah. Like Square, right? You're creating a yeah. basic closed loop ecosystem between all the people who are part of your network and you don't right. have to use Visa or MasterCard Rails. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah.
1: And I think that's an interesting time I mean Visa MasterCard continue to record like what? Record profit. Record- rough- <laughs> profits. Because I always think like every fintech is basically like, a slight one is we hate Visa MasterCard, right? That's effectively it. And then the end slide is we will become Visa MasterCard. So I'm just curious how you're thinking
0: about that from your perspective. I mean, I own Visa and MasterCard stocks. I think they're great businesses. What's the question? Are they great businesses? Yes. Would it be yeah. great to have your own Visa MasterCard? Sure. Is it really hard to do? Yes. I think trying to figure out ways to do it in vertical slices where
1: you can own that loop is important. Right. Um,
0: but trying to take them head on, I think, is generally pretty foolish. Yeah.
1: I think, what's the definition of success, actually? And because when people say neo bank, of course, I think people are like, define success as like, you have to be as big as DBS, you have to be as big as BNI. I mean, obviously, that's one definition of success. But when you think about these banks, what do you think success looks like? Maybe, is it from a VC perspective, an operator perspective? Is it okay just to own the loop, for example, in this one vertical?
0: I mean, I think you need to have strong return on equity. <laughs> if uh, I'm investing $100 million yeah. into this bank, egg. Yeah. At some point, I need to have sort of a path yeah. to seeing how I'm throwing off free cash flow. If not at the individual level, I definitely need to understand it at the group level. Right. But yeah, why should I do a bank over any other thing that I could invest in my business? Like I have to believe that there is a path to a viable business or yeah. some strategic blocking mode here. Otherwise, right. it's not right. I'm stand chart. Why do I need to put a hundred million dollars into a digital bank right. versus hundred million dollars in any other part of my bank? Right. I have to believe. Right. Either I'm accessing right. customers I would be able to do or the work that I do on the digital bank actually is going to lower costs in my main bank because, and it's sort of like a scoped way for me to try stuff out with a population that isn't as wedded to some existing set of ways of doing things. Yeah. But I opened a bank account recently and I was shocked that I had to sign so many pieces of paper. Today, when you can open... A transfer wise account just with SingPass. Why doesn't every bank do that? And I asked the person, and she was like, Oh, my bank is very conservative. And like, Oh, it only works for Singaporeans. And there are many non Singaporeans opening accounts with us or something like that. And it is shocking to me that in this day and age, and when it's so easy with another you know, validation, and you get my tax return, you get my validation of my income, and you get all of these things, and all you to do is just like click through. And actually, you wanted me, you preferred for me to sign like ten pieces of paper.
1: Well, as long as if Wise isn't a good spot either, I'm currently stuck in customer service hell with my transfer Wise account. It's just like you get an email, then you're like push me to a call. After a bunch of times, the calls like you got to call another call at a certain time, and just in that circular loop.
0: Oh no! Um, I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I've always had good experiences with wise it's fast
1: okay well why is customer service if you're hearing this this is like waving a white flag here but i think there's an interesting dynamic obviously so i guess we've broadened this out to a little bit like the fintech side obviously we're seeing banks but it's not just the function of the bank but also a function of the products that they have i think one interesting way that i've seen it play out now is that instead of trying to underwrite for example the whole bank and you're trying to do like the saving and checkings accounts i think people are trying to move and do some of that banking by going to financial products like mortgages so trying to deploy capital via mortgages or various forms of property financing. Because the thesis, if I was again, like making a slide deck, would be like, hey, the biggest chunk of financing is, for example, buying property. And that's a secured loan. So you're relatively more stable in terms of segments. There are clear requirements. There's good go-to-market channels like developers and other agents who will be there. Totally. So it's a little bit clearer. So I think property financing, rent to own, but at some levels about property technology, but other levels also about financial tech underwriting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is like, hey, don't try to change people's behavior because it's really expensive. Yeah. Instead, yeah. find out what people are already doing—buying houses, right. renting houses, whatever it is—and make that easier. Finance that. So, I think in the U.S., Divvy is like a, a rent-to-own platform that has grown pretty big. Avon, I think, is a really interesting business. Essentially, it's it's a home equity line of credit in the form of a credit card, but they do instant underwriting online. So, home equity line of credit is a you know not a new product, but right. if you went to your bank and you're like like Like, hey, I want to get a home equity line of credit. It would take like multiple weeks and a lot of paperwork to get it going. And you go to Avon, you go to a website, you like type in your address, fill out a bunch of stuff you can get underwritten in 15 minutes and right. then you have really cheap financing because it's collateralized securitizing against yeah. your house yeah, uh, which is huge for people and so I think there's this sort of why try to reinvent the wheel when people already seek credit or in very specific ways can right. you just make the whole process less painful
1: right yeah I think there's something to be said about speed and so I think the trade-off is really about accuracy right after that because what you want to do is you want to underwrite accurately and quickly because then you know you have the best customers but then you don't have that pain but obviously I'm not saying traditional banks. I'm not that they can speed it up and just be just as accurate. But I think that's where a lot of the stumbles can be from fintech startups is that working to be fast, obviously, to get that customer in. But there's a big underwriting experiment that happens, which is about it's easy to lend out money. It's hard to get it back, right? Oh, yeah. And so yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the hard yeah. part yeah. the interest margin. Just because you
0: lent a lot of money doesn't mean you're a product market fit. It just means you're giving <sighs> people something really cheap or free and they're loving it. So, yes. I agree with that. Fraud will always be an issue at a big enough scale. The fraudsters are very clever and they will find you. So it's... For sure, it's yeah. not an easy proposition.
1: And it's circular back to the banks again. But if you're a fintech and you're doing a lot of lending, and you're talking about lending companies, then it goes back to your cost of capital. And then you can get the cost of capital all the way from equity, from raising from VCs, your venture debt, then you have debt lines, and then you know, all the way down to wherever it is. But still, the cost of capital is a huge part of your net interest margin. So your ability to lend a lot, but also your ability to lend accurately so that you don't have fraud and non-payment. Or Of course, there's a the macroeconomic shocks, like a recession, for example, that could impact that. And then, of course, your cost of capital. And then suddenly you're back into this piece now, suddenly when you're lending and you're like, oh no, the best cost of capital was to set up that checking and savings account in the first place, right? So I think there's a bit of a strategic yeah. inversion or loop-de-loop here, which is like all roles yeah, lead be back to the lowest course. cost of capital.
0: Yeah, I mean, lending is not complicated. There's three variables. Lending is cost Ooh, of capital, insane. cost of acquisition, yeah. and quality of underwriting. Those are your three variables. All right. And unless you are a bank... There's not much you can do about cost of capital. Right. You don't have a lot of control. CAC is generally where most people die. Yeah. And then quality of your underwriting, right? What proprietary data do you have that makes you better able to underwrite than anybody else? Right. That's it. There's nothing really rocket science about it. You just have to answer those three questions.
1: Yeah. It's just rocket science. So easy. <laughs> just got to do it, huh?
0: Yeah. But I think that's what happens when people are always like, oh, I have this like social media data. I have all this. And you're like, okay. But by how much does it improve your underwriting? How do we yeah. know? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, there's hard factors and soft factors. If somebody has a working capital problem, It doesn't matter that the sound of their voice is very trustworthy or you have the names of five of their friends that you can call and harass. At the end of the day, they don't have the money. Right, right. Right. So willingness to pay and ability to pay, right? Those are the hard and soft factors. So it's not an unknown thing.
1: How does someone have bringing the right executive or talent to understand all of this? So I think I met a few fintech founders. But they're probably more focused on the go-to-market the sales, but they don't really understand the finance, the say, right? The ability to model out and show what we have to do in terms of experiments or what the end state net interest margin will look like for this category. So how do you think about where to find them? Are they at a bank? Are they at another fintech company? Where are they?
0: There's lots of people with credit experience, but I would say I don't think you should start a fintech company that involves lending unless you've at least built a simple model to prove to yourself that it's possible. Right. You could just be like, okay, here's my cost of capital. They could put up for 10%, right? Here's what my average loan value is going to be. Here's what I think I could charge for it. Here's what my CAC is going to be. And here's what percent I think I'm going to have for NPLs, non-performing loans. And you could build a very simple model. It does not take crazy math to do that. And you can just be like, does this make sense? Right. Um, and you can benchmark it against other fintechs. Yeah and be like, well, I'm probably not going to be industry leading on day one. It's going to take me time mm. to get up to that. So how much capital is going to be required for me to get to that level? Yeah. I think at least you don't need to know for sure, but you need to have a theory of how you think it's going to go.
1: Right. Any parting words of advice for all the fintech founders out there? I think I was just reading halfway, I didn't get to finish, finish it. Jeff Basking at Five just wrote a thesis on fintech first, SaaS second. So it's like, saying, hey, vertical SaaS companies, then they often add a financing module later. But now he's saying the other way around, which is, can you start with lending first and then you build the SaaS modules afterwards. So I thought it was an interesting thesis. I think we've definitely seen that be attempted in Southeast Asia, and i also seen that fail in Southeast Asia as well. But I'm just curious if you have any advice that you have or thoughts, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you've seen the fintech for SaaS later in Southeast Asia because in general, it's hard to sell SaaS in Southeast Asia. Yeah. It's easier to sell yeah, financing. Yeah. Well, America and just discovered
1: it recently, so because they have so many banks.
0: It's just that in general, American banks aren't good at building software, so I think that's a different <laughs> challenge. Yeah. Fintech, I have one piece of advice for fintech founders. I think sometimes with fintech, people over index on the math of why someone should do something like, oh, it's so obvious. I'm a cheaper way to do this. And they actually forget about the psychology of someone buying that financial product. Right. So most financial products don't get bought very often. If you think about it, it's not a daily decision you're making. And there's a lot of considerations that go into purchasing a financial product and they're not all math. And most people actually are emotion driven. They're not math driven. And so sometimes I think people forget about that. And so when you encounter these products, they're like, why isn't this thing converting? Don't they get it? It's such a better product. And they forget to talk to their customer and be like, hey, when you are buying a mortgage or an insurance policy or whatever it is, like, what are you thinking about? What are your considerations?" And then addressing right. that through their product experience, they go straight to the numbers and the math. And a lot right. of people don't enjoy that and it doesn't resonate. They don't engage with it well.
1: On my end, I think my piece of advice would be what you said earlier, which is you really got to understand the model, and what it lands up in terms of net interest margin, by making sure you understand your cost of capital, your cost of acquisition and your quality of underwriting. I think people tend to focus a lot on cost of acquisition because that seems to be a more straightforward, go to market. Doesn't people want to buy and sell? And, but I think a lot of fintech aspiring founders end up getting very shocked by the cost of capital, especially since there's a lot of change over the past three years. So a lot of models that seem to work, just doesn't work at different levels of cost of capital. But also I think the huge amount of humility around the accuracy of your underwriting is going to be super duper key because that takes time. Like when you build a company, a your deck, you're going to know your cost of capital pretty fast. You're just going to walk into a bunch of rooms and then you walk out and you're like, should hit <laughs> what you have? And you're like, ah, oh, shit. And then your cost acquisition is quite doable because you do your Facebook test, you put a product market fit test, Maybe you understand the vertical pretty well. So you yeah, have those two pieces. And then your quality of underwriting, you can make a certain set of assumptions about how good your underwriting is versus standards but you don't actually know. And so I think you've got to have that final model at the end that ties it all together. It's just like you said, tells you green light versus yellow light versus red light. And I think where I've seen some FitTech founders fail is like they just didn't really think about how each of these factors could change over time. That's one. But also kind of avoided the model's answer at the end of the day, right? About, hey, what does this mean I have to do aggressively a change, right? So yeah.
0: I mean, humility, I would... Recommend to everyone. And living in reality, like the model's answers suggest, this, living in reality, super useful. So yes, I fully endorse those recommendations.
1: <laughs> Same, I fully endorse yours as well. On that note, see you next week, shian
0: All right, take it easy.
1: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.